Welcome to Sparks, a podcast from Ignium, designed to help you reignite your passion and drive your business forwards. So welcome to the Ignium Sparks podcast. Uh, This is all about sparking imagination and sparking inspiration in businesses and helping businesses understand how do they grow the value of their business while keeping to their true intent. What we're actually aiming for is businesses that are purpose-led and want to really grow their business around their purpose to help them scale in some way, but they've got to do it from the ground up. And often we talk to businesses about getting your talent, your capability and your culture right at the ground level, because then you can grow the business on the back of that. So today I'm going to be talking with Paul Wilkinson, and Paul describes himself as just a photographer, (laughs) but I know he's more than that, because actually yesterday Paul has told me that he's won International Portrait Photographer of the Year, so more than just a photographer. But I want to explore a few things with him, because Paul is also a podcaster, so for me it feels quite intimidating sitting next to Paul, (laughs) because I know he's better at doing it than I am, because he's got posh mics and everything like that. But for the podcast, we want to really look into what helps someone like Paul grow and how do you grow a business from being just a single artist to growing a business that's not just solely reliant on Paul. So, Paul, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's nice to be here in my own studio. In your own studio. Yeah, exactly. I should say, actually, we are are recording this in Paul's studio rather than in my meagre studio because Paul's got mics that actually make it look like we're doing the right thing. So, Paul, I mentioned, you know, just a photographer. Tell me a bit more about how you really describe yourself. Uh, I do actually describe myself as just a photographer. Um, I'm a portrait photographer, um, pretty much in that regard, a thoroughbred portrait photographer. Um, I have tried my hand at variations of a theme uh, in that regard, uh, as all photographers do. I think you pick up a camera, you get good with a camera. People mm. ask you to take pictures of things. Mm. There are things I can take pictures of very successfully, and there are things that I find much more tricky. And I suspect most of that's actually because of the way I'm wired. It's not. I know how to use a camera. I know how to use Photoshop. I know how to use Lightroom. I know all of the tools. So why would I not be able to take an amazing picture of a building? And it has to be entirely down to my mindset. Yeah. And the fact that I love taking pictures of faces. I like characters. I like the podcast because I get to talk to people. Mm. And portrait photography for me is an extension of a conversation. You know, it's an excuse to drag people, <laughs> drag people within, well, not no longer within two meters of me, of course, yeah. uh, but to drag people into the same room as me and spend a couple of hours laughing, chatting, creating imagery and sending them on their way. So uh, I do describe myself as just a photographer, but I'm acutely aware that I'm a portrait specialist and that's what I'm known for. Yeah. And actually that thing about just being aware of what you're known for. And you know, when we talk about building businesses, you, you can't be all things to all men. You've got to have something specific and actually being a photographer portrait photographer gives you that niche um, but you weren't always a photographer and I'd love to just explore a bit about that because everyone goes on a journey in growing a business and at some stage in people's journey they decide they want to grow their own business yeah. if they're in something else and I always say that people set up the business for one of three reasons typically it's typically they want to either create something that grows value in the world and, and as Apple used to say make a dent in the universe or they want to create less stress for themselves than they've got in their older job make more money create more time to do something for themselves so if you would look back at those three things stress time money or create a change in the university something different <laughs> which would you say was the thing that drove you into wanting to do photography rather than what you did before uh that's such a good question to ask someone who's creative i don't think you'll find a photographer that set it up to make more money you might do there probably are photographers out there who purely came at it from a this is a business. Let's mm. work out our supply chain. Let's work out our throughput. Let's work out how many cheap resources I can put in front of the client. Let's make it, work out how many pictures a week I can sell. 
those photographers do exist. Okay. Business mogul end of this industry exists. Yeah. I've met quite a few of them. Very few of them are happy because they have the same stresses I used to have when I worked in Accenture. Yeah. You know, they're time poor, stress heavy, not really creative. They're business people, but they're trying to make money. They're trying to commoditize something that's very difficult to commoditize. Yeah. You can't really do it. Every picture, certainly every portrait is yeah. unique. Now, if you're working, let's say, for Argos or Sainsbury or John Lewis and you're doing product photography, maybe that's different. Maybe when you're doing catalog style, that's different. That's a machine. Yeah, yeah. The creativity is done by the creative director much earlier in the food chain than you. So maybe there is an argument that you could then run a business that's simply like a supply chain. It's yeah. just like retail. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's fairly rare. I think most photographers, certainly all the photographers I've ever really got to know have said it's all about this thing um you know there's something i can't work out what the words are because the word passion comes up a lot creativity Mm. of course comes up a lot but in the end there's this sort of it's like um musicians as well and authors i think that you're driven by this really weird switch that at some point gets flicked and you just find something in that now, whether that's that old, you know, externally referenced, yeah, I yes. just want to be acknowledged, I just want people to love my work thing, or whether it's I just love creating, I couldn't tell you. You know, when I left school, I'd intended to be a musician. That was my career track. Okay. I was already working as a professional musician aged 17, as soon as I could drive. Musicians union, percussionist, could read music and play quietly. It turns out that's a combination that's not as common <laughs> as you think. And so I was working pretty successfully I would never have been rich, but boy, did I love it. Mm. Um, Of course, when I went to the careers advisors at school, much like the poster the government has recently stuffed in front of us, all the careers advisors said, you don't want to be a musician, much like poor old Fatima, and don't be a ballet dancer. They said precisely what I'd expect them to say. You can't be a musician. That's a hobby. That's not a job in a small town in North Wales. And so much to my chagrin, I said, okay, I acquiesced and said, okay, well, my second passion is I'm quite arty. I draw a lot. Um, I'll go and do art or design. Yeah, yeah. And they said, art is a hobby. That's not a living. Keep that as a hobby. What do you really want to do? And eventually, like all roads for someone in North Wales, it appears, who's male and half good at maths and physics, they said, you'll be an engineer. Nice. Well, I didn't really want to be an engineer. My dad was head of computing, a big computing component for British Steel. Clever okay. guy, really clever guy. Um, so he was a computer coder and a systems manager. Didn't really fancy that lifestyle very much, though that will turn out to be exactly where I ended up. So uh, at one of the university, as it used to be for us, was it Ucca? I think it was UCCA when we yeah, were. Yeah, it was Ucca, yeah. UCAS, yeah. UCAS, UCAS, UCAS yeah. Uh, and I picked up one of the brochures for the university that my mum and dad were at. That's where they met. And so I picked up their prospectus. And in the back, buried on the back page pretty much of this prospectus, was one course called Industrial Design, which married engineering with the bit that I was really interested in, which is the design. Okay. And it kept everybody happy because instead of it being a BA, it was a BSc. And that was it. That was my logic. I'm going to go back to the university where my mum and dad met. I'm going to go and do a BSc, so not a BA, so everyone's happy. They can stop putting pressure on me to be an engineer. I'm going to have a Bachelor of BSc. Science. Yeah. But actually what I'll do when I get there is learn how to draw and design products, you know, because of course that's 
yeah, I was 17, 18 when I'm making this decision. <laughs> so that's what I did. Um, got myself a music bursary at the university. So the university, actually, I won a bursary. So the music, university paid me to play drums for them, for the orchestras and the jazz bands and all the shows and things. So I managed to kind of sidetrack that into there as well. And over the period of four years, fell in love with the design way of thinking. Right, okay. Which is, a, I'm choosing my words quite carefully. And what do you, in that case, I was going to explore, what does design way of thinking actually mean? Well, it's a way of approaching a problem. I think architects will tell you a very similar thing. Architecture, being an architect is simply problem solving okay. in, an aesthetically happily, in an aesthetically pleasing way. You describe a problem, I want to live or I want to work or I want to you know, hold sports events or whatever it is. And they will solve that in a way that is ergonomic, it's friendly, it, it creates joy, but also visually interesting. And so that, there's this way of thinking as a designer um, that I found incredibly appealing, really enjoyed, um, and came out of that course with a first-class honours degree okay. in industrial design. Obviously, like all young designers, thought I was going to go to Italy. Because uh, they all went at that time. Of course they did. Uh, that didn't happen. And at the time, it was we're just coming towards the end of Mrs. Thatcher's time in government. This is 1992. There was no work in the UK for designers. We didn't really have any industry. And I suddenly realized that I'd got this brilliant degree and a great qualification that I'd buried my life into, but there was actually very little work mm. for that skill set in this country at that time. Now, obviously, with Brexit coming up, that's going to change. That, luckily for anyone coming up behind me, there's more. There's got to, we have got to, you know, we're reading. If we really are going to go out of this thing with no deal and they really are going to penalize mm -hmm. things like you know, Japanese components, well, we're going to have to start designing and building our own. Thank goodness for that. That's, Do it ourselves. For me, that's, I mean, I'm, I'm a big remainer. I was, you know, would always rather be part of something bigger. But if we have to go out alone, then we are going to have to learn to undo all of the damage that was done mm. in the 80s and 90s. Where we lost the skill set that we, we actually the, needed we to do this next stage. We started yeah. thinking we could get it cheaper from Korea. Why don't we? Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, we value engineering from Germany. Why don't we? Or we yeah. value um, style from Italy. Or we value, you know, whatever it is, that American culture thing, the pop culture thing that we get across the pond. We stopped valuing British-led, apart from a few key things. I drive a Land Rover Defender, and I'm proud as punch every time I go out. <laughs> a piece of iconic design. Yeah, quietly forgetting it's now owned by an Indian company. Uh, you know, so there's this thing. We've got to have that passion, but we didn't then. It had gone. And at exactly the same moment, I was sat, literally, I was sat in my room in the halls um, at Brunel University in West London. It's this big stately home. It's where they filmed the Centrinians films. Okay, right. So it gives, you, it all, it gives yeah. you an idea what it, this thing looked like. As it happened, my room was above the offices. Among, there was a handful of rooms that were above the office, big room. Yeah. And I sat on my bed, scratching my head. And at the same time, a professor, one of the professors came past, stuck his head around. He said, Paul, you ever thought about doing a PhD in neural computing? So what we would now call machine learning. And that's quite, quite avant-garde in that sense because, you know, you, you, um, you're talking a number of years ago. So hmm. neural computing yeah. at that time was quite a new design-led. It was brand new. No, you know, in, in a sense, um, it was really only – I mean, that's, to, to be fair, I think the early papers were in the 60s. I mean, I don't think this was – you know, we were breaking ground because by definition to get a PhD, you have to break ground. And that's the whole premise of a PhD. Mm. So, yes, we were like everybody doing a PhD trailblazing, but we were fairly early. I mean, it's, I don't really think it's called neural computing anymore. It's now called machine learning. Yeah, okay. But it's the same thing. It's all the same stuff. And it's built on the, you know, as part of a long chain of, of 
researchers who develop techniques. I have no idea whether any of mine were ever adopted, but I certainly got my PhD at the end of it. Okay. Um, and so that's where I was. And so I ended up consulting, doing just me out on a road, being paid what I thought then was a ridiculous amount of money. It was just... Lovely to have some money. <laughs> I came out of university and there were people willing to pay me not just day rates, but retainers to stay on their books to act. It was a venture, venture capital company up in Birmingham in particular. Okay. And they kept me on their books. And Very different. They found a new thing they wanted to invest money in. They drove me up to Birmingham. or I drove myself to Kidderminster, um, gave them my pennyth and drove home and got paid got what paid I was thinking back then. Well, this is great. This is great. But very quickly, it turned out, um, money isn't everything. And yeah, and that's that's always the thing, isn't it? So, so we're talking there about you know, what's your thing? You talked about you know not not many photographers go into the world of photography to create lots of money. They go in because of something else. It's yeah. that creative way. And you're saying that you know you you chose to go down the BSC route because it gave you the the the, the balance between. What one person wanted, what another person wanted, it gave you the chance to bring your your industrial design into the world. But there's the creativity there, and you talked about you know, approach, it's an approach to problems, looking at economic ergonomics and helping businesses understand what the things look like and how do you create mm -hmm. something from it. But this thing about neural computing—that's a long way from where you are today. Yeah. So, so what's that link? What's the thing apart no. from being a drummer? <laughs> when did photography pop up into your life? It was always there. I was always a photographer. Like I think if you ask a musician, when did you become a musician? They'll tell you the day they picked up their instrument for the first time, whenever that was. Yeah, okay. I've always had a camera. I've had a camera since I was a kid. Um, I wasn't particularly talented. Okay. Um, I was okay. You know, the, 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 if, if I had a talent, if I have a talent, it's taken many years of unearthing it. Yeah, okay. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to say that I'm not lucky. I am lucky. I can see a picture and take a picture. But you've got that eye to do it, and that will do that. Eye. Yeah, the same as a musician has that melody in them, or whatever mm, it is. You know, mm. soul. You talk. You hear this talked about a lot with musicianship. Um, now, whether that's a trained thing, whether I always had it, I don't know. What I do know is back then I didn't ever exhibit any of those traits. <laughs> I could take a picture. It came a lot later, bit by bit, as people realised that I could point a camera at a face, yeah, and capture something, and so. You know, you kind of can wind the clock forwards 10 years. So I did this freelance consulting for a bit and then eventually ended up in Accenture. I was headhunted into a big corporate, spent my mm. life traveling. And what that did was it gave me two things. It gave me money because yep. then I could afford what was then film-based um, to, to pursue this hobby. And it also made me, it gave me travel. I traveled all over the world with my job and I took a camera with me. Um, failed miserably to do anything sensible with it. Um, except once I went into New York with nothing but my wallet, bought a camera, secondhand Nikon FE, I think, and a 15mm okay. lens, um, and bought some film and went and took some pictures, went, did some street work in New York. It's the one and only time I've deliberately gone out and done some street photography. Lovely. Um, had the best afternoon, I think, of my entire stay in New York. Took no good pictures whatsoever. <laughs> it didn't spark anything that was going to make me a street photographer. Um, but the whole process of that gave me um, the backing and it gave me this sort of view of the world. And at the same time, over those 10 years, it ground me down. And so, and there's an, interestingly enough, myself and my wife, Sarah, had a conversation the other night. And I don't, I've never recalled it like this, but she does about when I came out of Accenture. Um, I did some freelance consulting as a bridge. So you, talk a you talked a little bit about the beginning about 
the process mm, of setting mm. up a business. I never leapt. Okay. I sort of quietly sashayed at the side. In from, into one from the other. <laughs> yeah. So I took a, a part-time role as a consultant. I was headhunted out um, and they couldn't afford me. The company, it was Pearson uh, Technology hired me out. They, they'd been my client at Accenture. Okay. Uh, I got a phone call saying, did I know anybody with my skills? Because they want someone with my skills. And when I said, <laughs> do you mean someone or do you mean me? They said, the guy, the VP of technology came over. He was in New Jersey and he flew over and said, uh, how about dinner? So, okay, let's go for dinner. And on the back of a napkin, literally in Loch Fine on the Strand, um, we sketched out some numbers and he couldn't afford me. Right. And I held my ground. And in the end, after numerous glasses of wine and a really lovely evening, he's a great guy and I got really well with him when he was my client. Um, I said, can you not afford me because you have a cap on what you can pay per hour mm. or do you have a budgetary constraint? Yeah. And he yeah. said, no, it's just budgetary. He said, you're 20% too expensive. Okay. And I said, well, 20% too expensive means four days a week. Yeah. Cut my note. A number of hours down, you can get me in. That's right. I just said, I'll do four days a week. You can have me on the phone. I'll, I'll throw you that one. I'll be on, on my phone or yeah. on email if you need me and I'll come in if it's desperate. But could you, do you think we could deliver the system in four days a week for the role I play? Uh, lots of jumping through hoops, but yes, was the answer in the end. Okay. And so we wrote it on the back of a napkin. Um, that turned out to be a little bit more complicated than I would have liked because the client is one of these structures of a company where my actual client on the ground didn't really answer to group, but it was group had recruited me. Okay. So the client on the ground wanted me to be a full-time program manager, but my client had just negotiated four days, four a, days week a week for me to be a consultant. And those two, it took a lot of getting through that initial bump. But once we were going, once yeah. a week it was, we delivered the system in. It was the fifth time they tried it. Um, luckily for me, the only time I tried it, and we put the system in safely. And as far as I'm aware, up until fairly recently, it was still their platform. So it still worked. Yeah, it was basic. You know, the, what they t- always tried to do was boil the ocean, you know, that typical company kind of, let's do everything. With a small budget. That's right. And they were massively, yeah, massively constrained by, by their budget as well as by the skills and the fact that if you go at the bleeding edge of technology, trust me, it's going to cut you. Mm. And so I didn't. I rolled it all backwards and put in everywhere that the technology, where they wanted really cool, really you know, state-of-the-art technology, we rolled it back three or four years. It's what they really need to make it work what they wanted is What I said to them is you want it to work. When it works and you've proved it and you start to get see the uplift, then you can use that money to invest in changing the technology. And, of course, I was fighting a fight because every coder, every techie wants to play mm. with the mm. latest you know, delivery techniques, the latest software, the latest platforms, the latest hardware. And it's like, don't do that. Not in this instance. What we're trying to do actually is deliver you a commodity system Yeah. because you are so constrained by the systems you have. You need to make this change. But if you do that, you will see a difference. Mm, over time. When you see the difference, then you'll, manage to, you'll justify the budgets to grow. Of course you will. Yeah. And sure enough, that's exactly how it, how it played. It was a very basic play, but it meant I could call on very simple skills very simple technology, managed and understood technology. Um, and eventually, of course, over time, their need for me diminished exactly as, I, as, as I'd hoped. And, and the final day, I, got, I went into the lift with one of their program managers, the head of all the programs. Uh, I happened to bump into him in the lift. He said, by the way, Paul, I've got another job for you. So this time now, it was the client on the ground asking yeah. me to stay with them. And I cocked an eye and said, what is it? And he described it. And I said, that sounds like five days a week, full-time program management to me. And he said, it is. Will you stay? And I said, would you be really upset if I said no? Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, well, we'd be disappointed, but we'd understand. 
And I said, in that case, it's time for me to... Time to move on. So was that the catalyst in that case to do something photography related or did you go somewhere else in the meantime? We'd already got that running. Um, okay. Because while I was at Accenture, and this is what I say, it was funny, me and Sarah had a conversation about this at night. My recollection was that I had a fit of peak and decided enough is enough. Yeah, as people do. Her recollection is she was starting to say to me, what's life about? Is yeah. it spending time at home with me and the kids or is it being out on the roads, being yeah. a senior guy at Accenture? Now, I'm, I'm sure the truth lies somewhere in between the two. You know, just like when you're married, and me and Sarah have been together for 30-odd years now, um, you talk a language between you. Mm. Now, her recollection, my recollection, I bet you both are absolutely correct, yeah. but it probably never formed words like that. Different perception between yeah. the two of you. But you know, same... Essentially, she was a single mum because I was always out, not always in the country, yeah. but always out yeah. on the road. Um, two kids growing up. I was starting, you know, Jake must have been about four years old by then. Yeah. So this is going back about 15 years. Um, and the pressures just became, what is it? What is it you want out of life? An odd thing. Um, and at the same time, people had seen the photography I'd taken of our kids and were mm. starting to ask, who's the photographer? And there was a there was a tipping point, and I was, I was at Accenture. So this is before I jumped. Yeah. And Sarah phoned me to say, her and some of the mums from. Uh, postnatal classes, you know, everyone gets together. Yeah, yeah. I'd got all their kids together and she'd seen, they'd come, they'd come to our house here in Haddenham and had seen a picture on the wall that I'd taken yeah. of our two kids and said, who's that photographer? Give me the details. I want to book them for a job. It turned out that lady Lovely. ran a marketing agency and had been looking for a photographer with exactly that wow. particular look. Mm, so mm. Sarah's ringing me up. She said, you never guess. Somebody thinks your photos are half decent. And that was, I remember that very distinct phone call because she couldn't believe anyone liked my photos. Like none of us, yeah. can. you know, I'd never thought they were any good. My mum said they were good, but my mum says everything about me is good. You know, <laughs> that's the typical artist insecurity yeah. at some stage, I'm sure. Yeah, I, I just, I don't think anyone had ever spotted anything, including me. Yeah. You know, I like the pictures, Sarah liked the pictures, but there are kids. Of course, you're going to like the pictures. Everyone likes your kids' pictures. That's right. If you're going to take a picture of, a, of your own child, well, success is sort of built in, isn't yeah. it? You know? Yeah. Um, and then, uh, and then that's the, the beginning of that conversation. And then gradually, as my clearly, I could feel the pressures on my job at the Financial yeah. Times diminishing. Yeah, they didn't need me. I could ramp up, and that's exactly yeah. just transition the two. That's and, it, and it's interesting because I talk to a lot of business owners about why they set up, and I love that story around you know going from one to the other. But for you, it was something where you had this this evolving passion. You enjoyed mm. taking pictures. And there was also the pressure coming along from the other job as well, which is why I say people jump for one of three reasons, stress, time or money, or they want to create something different in the universe, whatever that thing might be, that cultural reason. And you mentioned about what's life all about, because I think a lot of people do get to a point in their journey where they say, what's it all about? Mm. What am I here for? Yeah, yeah. And, and it's trying to create that, that view of where you go. And, and we work with a lot of businesses, which I call a purpose-led. And purpose can be for anything you want it to be, but it's something above and beyond making money often. Yes. Because that's the real thing that excites me. And I don't, I don't want to work with businesses that don't have another reason apart from making money. Yeah. Money is the byproduct. You'll make more money if you get the purpose right than you get the culture right yeah. in a business. Yeah. And, and, to a and, point. Yeah, at a point. <laughs> but you've got to hold that because actually I believe yeah. you can still do that. Yeah. So, so from your perspective, you end up in this world of photography by chance, because someone liked your picture and it was your children's picture. And then you suddenly started to become a business owner. Mm. And I think there's always this thing around business owners who are artists. And I use that word artist loosely because people who are artists could be painting or creating a picture, or even as I've done a lot of coaching, it's mm. an artistry yeah. and you love yeah. the passion of what you do. So how did you transition from 
Accenture, the world of work where you're streamlining businesses, doing a lot of your industrial design work and in terms of your, your, your business world. How did you transition that into a world of photography and making money out of that? Well, I mean, the first thing to note is I took a 90% pay cut to do it. Mm. It, was, it was pretty hefty. And when we asked the kids at the time, you know, would you be happy to give up the skiing holidays and the, and the new cars, but daddy will be home all the time? They were, they were young, Jake. I said it was about four or five. Yeah. So the kids both said, oh, yeah, daddy at home. Ask them now. Go on, ask them now. They're 19 and 22. <laughs> I, have no idea, I have no doubt at all. Go back to work, dad. Give us the cars and the skiing holidays. Um, so I took a big pay cut. But at the time, you know, Sarah was working. She had a great job as well. She's a very clever, very clever uh, marketeer. So at the time she was working at Royal Mail and then uh, she moved over to uh, Argos as a marketing manager over there. And she already had a career. So she could hold up enough of the covering of our bills as long as I brought something in. Yeah, okay. So we, we went through that very carefully. I cashed in some of the shares I'd exited Accenture with, which, you know, you have to sort of, even now we've, we've occasionally cast an eye at the share price to see whether I made a drastic yeah. mistake or not. And actually I did okay because at the time Accenture was right at the top of the pile and, you know, they've not Consultancy been, place, yeah. Yeah, consultancy was, is very lucrative. So that was all good. So we had a little bit of money in the bank. But what we did was, and I, I wrote this as a, I, I keep a track of all the blog ideas I want to talk about. Okay. And this is one of them. I wrote this title the other night and it was, um, I think I got it. I don't know whether I've got it the right way around yet, but it was um, think like a business, act like an artist. Love it. Yeah. Or it might be think like an artist, act like a business. I don't know, but there's a difference in your approach. So we set about, I, I say this, I say this like this was a singularity. It wasn't, this wasn't a big bang. All right. We've developed this over the years and we're still, you know, I'm interested to ask you, actually, do you mm. think people have a singularity like that at the moment? And I think you have many. Mm. You know, everyone laughed at me saying I was having a midlife crisis. Well, I've been having a midlife crisis ever since. I think you, you continually, you know, each is a singularity, but when yeah. you join the dots, it's a trajectory. Yeah. It's, it's a series of little decisions that each at the time feels like a <gasps> moment. Um, and we decided, we sat down for a few weeks and tried to put together a brand because I always thought, so we set about, let me clarify. I come from a business background. Although I've always had a creative streak, a musician, an artist, and then a photographer, I actually came through a corporate route. I was trained by Accenture, big corporate American you know, mm. monolith. Um, so when I came out, we set about building a business that eventually we could sell. Okay, okay. That was, that was our original game plan. Okay. So we sat down at the kitchen table, myself and Sarah, and threw ideas around and came up with this sort of, okay, Whatever else we need to do, we need to make this thing sellable because that's what businesses do. You set up a business, you make it successful, you offload at a profit, and then we can retire in the sun, right? Sounds like a grand plan. Brilliant. I mean, if I haven't met every entrepreneur as the same damn plan. Uh, and we sat down and chewed that around and came up with some names, and, and we involved a really good friend of ours, a lady called Jill McClellan. If she ever listens to this podcast, she's one of the cleverest people I've ever met. Uh, another marketeer, she trained with Sarah at Royal Mail on okay. the management. Uh, training course and and literally one of the smartest nicest people on the planet and she sat down and she looked at me and she said what are you selling and we kind of well <laughs> we did the yeah, what are we selling images you know she said no you're not you're selling an experience with Paul. yeah yeah and she stripped it straight back to the point that we'd both not missed we kind of got it there um you know i'm not going to play myself and sarah down i'm not going to say we hadn't got there but i am going to say jill did point out something that we were probably pushing to the back. 
Mm. Which he said they're not buying into a brand that you can sell. They're buying into you. Yeah. It's you. Yeah. You're there with the camera. You know, and you must have the same thing with coaching. And this, this is interesting, you know, this weekend I've noticed it's the uh, Tame, I think they call it Art Walk. Oh, yeah. Around yeah, Tame. Yeah, yeah. And I happened to be noticing there was, a, there was a beautiful picture in the window of one of the shops. And, and I always think about artists because artists are, the, you know, artists all over the same. People who love their thing, their craft, that's what people buy. And a lot of artists, yes, you can make your name into something and create the brand with your signature on it yeah. and people buy that. Often it happens once you're gone. Yes. Actually creating that yes. brand of the artist while you're alive. You know, David Hockney's done it very well. He has. And he still creates that. Yeah. But actually a lot of artists don't manage that. Yeah. They love their passion. And I think as a coach, which I've done now for 12 years, you end up people buy you. And you couldn't create the brand of Phil Rose and have other coaches right. trained in the Phil Rose That's methodology. Exactly right. So it is a problem. There are ways around it, but I'd love to explore that in a minute. But I think this key thing is around, you know, from your perspective, if you're selling the experience, they're buying actually the thing that you've got your eye through the lens to capture their image yeah is what they come to you yeah. for and the thing all they want is the picture on the wall at the end of the day and i think there's more to it though well yeah and this is i mean you're one of my clients yeah exactly uh, some people pictures. You're, the, you're my best type of client yeah. and you represent about 80 percent of my clients which is lovely our retention rates are huge mm -hmm. um but you are a, re a repeat client i would hazard a guess that I, I, for me, as in, in the world of photography, that the bit of the world of photography that I reside in, the portrait photography people, mm. I would hazard a guess that most of my clients, with all due respect to my incredible, lovely, smart, switched-on, industry mogul, doctors, consultants, sports people, clients, most of them don't know a great picture if it popped them on the nose. That's interesting. Because a great picture, when you become a photographer and you develop your skills, has many facets. Okay. And most people won't know them. But is that the finer detail of it, that actually the man on the street who wants to buy your picture... There's tons of it. ...doesn't there's, need to know that? Yeah, there's tons of it. Yeah. But actually, what most people want to come, they want to have an amazing experience. Yeah. They want to feel great about themselves and their family. They want somebody else to feel great about them and their family. Mm -hmm. There's a, com com a combination of affirmation and aspiration in there. And at the end of it, they want it represented in pictures that yeah. invoke a memory of a time. Yeah. Again, I'm being quite specific yeah. in portrait photography. Now, when I'm doing corporate headshots for people, which is huge for us, we do a ton of it. That's not quite the same thing. Then I'm representing the brand of that person. Yeah. Yeah. So that's slightly different. Um, if I'm doing headshots for an actor, I'm representing the characters that they might portray. I'm yeah. showing a portfolio of talent. So there are lots of little bits and pieces. And of course, if we're doing wedding photography, I'm documenting, you know, a day where you're surrounded by the people you love most in the world. And that, that's a weird thing because that gets more valuable over time as people mm. pass on. You know, the pictures become what you're left with. So there are lots of facets to it. Um, I think people come to feel great. I think yeah. in the end, it boils down to that. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? You mentioned I'm a, I'm a client. I've been to you twice now. We've made 10 years apart, mind. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you're right, that service experience, that feeling great about it, and you know, someone else who recognizes and says your kids look good. Yeah. That's something. You want that as they. And I think you do come to photographer of that. 
I'm also reflecting, it was our 22nd wedding anniversary just recently. And we often look at our photo album yeah. where we've got these proper photos in an album with yeah. pieces of sh- acid they're not yeah. the sheet you peel off between them. And you look at the photos. I hope and it's acid free or they'll be fading. Yeah, is it, well, they are in a box still okay. and they're sort of sitting in the same place they've been for the last 10 years. But we look at them and it does bring back the memory of the day. Yeah. Now, I remember the name of the photographer. I don't know where she is now. Right. Don't know where she is And it, you know, it doesn't matter from that perspective. But I remember taking it. But we did go to her at that time because she took great pictures and that's what we wanted. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, the problem because the, the creativity, the craft lies in the photographer. Yes. You mentioned there you wanted to build a business you can sell. And you went to talk to, to Jill and she said, what's your experience? What are you selling? So what was the realization that went off in your head at that time around building a business you can sell and selling the experience? Well, if there was a realization. We've tinkered with it a little bit. So that it, although we've, we made a decision back then that it would be about selling me as a craftsman, as an mm. artist. Mm. And so... There are lots of tricks to it. I mean, my signature became the core of the brand. Yeah. I say the brand. Of course, it's not the brand. I'm the brand, but it became the device, the logo yeah, device. Yeah, the device, yeah. Um, and it became, you know, widely recognized, uh, which gave me a slight aside as a headache was it happened to also at that time be the signature on my checkbook. So I then had to kind of re- reinvent my actual <laughs> to the bank signature. So now after all of these years, of course, they're quite different signatures. Um, but that is actually my signature, our brand is. And yeah. it was only about two years in. Somebody said, well, I could fake your checks. And so, like, oh, Lord, I never even thought of that. For all those people out there who do still use checks, if you come and find well, one of Paul's yeah, books. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> back away. Uh, but that was an interesting twist. So we built it around me. Yeah. We just said, we, we, we wrote out. So I, I'm not going to downplay the fact that me and Sarah did think of this as a business and still mm, do. Mm, mm. What we did, though, was work out the product was me mm. or, or you know, I'm the, I'm, I'm the, at the pinch point. And, and yeah. about 12 years ago, I started working at Le Manoir. Okay. And I'm their partner photographer and have been for many years. And I watched the way that Raymond Blanc fronted that business. Yeah. And I watched the way the business supported him in that endeavor. And we cherry-picked little nuggets of things we learned along the way. Because one of the problems that happened, of course, if it's all about me, we're very time-boxed. Yes. Yeah, there's only a certain number of hours in the day. My <laughs> capacity do? is limited. Yeah, my capacity is very limited. Yeah. And so when we've brought people into the business, we've learned from people like Raymond Blanc and other personality-led mm. businesses, particularly in the hospitality sector, yeah. and looked at how they wrap the experience around that person. Yeah, yeah. And while I'm not for a minute saying I'm like Raymond Blanc, I mean, that would be, you know, <laughs> just crazy. Um, I am saying that we thought about it that way. Mm. And so what we've done is put me onto the pinch point. So we wrote out the story of the client journey. You know, I'm using yeah. consulting terms. Yeah. These, yeah. Sound, these I'm sure sound it familiar makes sense to you. the people I'm talking to. Yeah, yeah. that's right. So we worked out the journey of the client and what's their story. From the introduction, which is invariably the first touch point, whether it's the website or a phone call mm. or seeing a picture on a friend's wall or whatever it is, what's that first touch point? Yeah. All the way through to the closure of the first gig. So usually... It's usually when they pick up the frames and take them away. Mm. It, does, it depends on the job, but that's nine times out of ten, the story. And we looked at all of the touch points in there and figured out where I need to be involved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, obviously the creation process, uh, any, any questions about styling are going to come through me in the end. Um, when they come for the reveal here, yeah. as much as I can be, I'm here. I can't always be because we, it's simply not possible. And I watched the way, again, Le Manoir deal with that with Raymond Blanc because he's his TV commitments and he works all over the world. 
that he couldn't always be there, but they managed that message really carefully. Mm -hmm. So we managed that message really carefully. And we thought about it as a business. You know, what, what it makes me laugh when I hear people talking about, oh, it's different in a big company. Well, how? I don't get that. The only difference is that me, Sarah, and, and Michelle, who work here, all have to wear all of the same functional hats that Accenture did as a corporate. Yeah, it's just they, had, they had 10 people per team, probably 2,000 people looking after it globally. I've got me. Yeah. You know? And so we have the same things, accounts payable, accounts receivable. We have a HR function. We've got a PR function, marketing sales. We've got production, a production workflow. You know, I produce something that yeah. sells. Yeah. Best think about that in a supply chain way, Dad, and I. Yeah. And so we have a creative direction. So we would like to change the world. Of course we would. I'm a creative guy. Yeah, you know, you in do. that sense, I'm Apple. I'd like to change your world. Yeah. Of course I don't because I'm taking pictures, but at least I've brought a little bit of joy into someone's life. But there are all of these things going on all of the time. And it's really interesting to be in amongst that. Yeah. Though frustrating, of course, because we are time boxed. But we've dropped me into tiny little bits of that puzzle to make that story work, mm -hmm. to make the client feel like I've been involved the whole way yeah. through and i have but i haven't always been visible i'm not they're always there on the front line and, and it's interesting to use the raymond blanc and the manoir view there you know if i go to the manoir actually you don't expect raymond blanc to be there all the way through it mm. but you've got the sprinkling of the magic that created mm. in the first place and this is what the paul wilkinson brand has become in the sense yeah. you've got a brand there it's more than your signature but that's the device you use but people come for the photography so i just want to just change track slightly in that case you've got a you've got yourself into the world of photography you're you're building yourself up you've done very well in terms of creating accolades for the business which put your name out there. Yeah. and when i talk about growing the value of a business i often talk about the layer one is getting the, the, the values and the culture and the talent right but at some level level six is actually getting the brand right and mm. by brand i don't just mean the pretty picture on the wall i mean all the things that go about the brand so when you're talking just now about you know, building the client journey and looking at the touch points, to me, that's all of those things that mean it's something. But the key is as well, it can be transferred to other places. You know, how do you take your brand and, and put it into another area and do something else? Because if you want a business owner to be, sorry, if you want to become a business owner from just being a one-man band artist, you've got to create a business. Yeah. And you've got to have a business that does something without you. And with the best in the world, a three-man business actually can't create it longer term unless you put some other things in there. So what's the process you've been through around creating the other extensions of not just photography, but the other things you do? Because that's the intriguing bit, I think. It is. And it's, uh, it's intriguing because we haven't answered that question yet. Mm. Um, and this is my point about, you know, every day is a pivotal day. <laughs> We're still just on that, on yeah. that kind of yeah. journey from where I know where we are. We've got yeah. this really smart little business. And in the photography world, you know, we're pretty well recognized, um, yeah. certainly, you know, with the awards and the accolades, um, but also out in the general public as well. I mean, uh, uh, the phone call I knew I'd got it about right was somebody rang in and said, when we buy the images, do they have Paul's signature on the bottom? Do they always have Paul's signature on the bottom? And I'm like, well, yes, but if you really want it removed, I yeah. can. 
And they said, no, 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 no. We just we wanted, wanted to make there. sure we were getting a Paul Wilkinson. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think there's something interesting in that, isn't there? Because people there are buying the image, but they're also buying something else when they buy those, paint, those pictures right. for me now. It's the, it's the, uh, the, the Rimoire or the Monet written on the bottom there. Yes, I could is. paint what a, what a Monet, Monet yeah. painted, but my signature just doesn't look yeah. the same. We own iPhones and Jaguars and Land Rovers and Chanel and you know, all of these brands because they say something about us. And putting yes. a Paul Wilkinson on your wall should say something yeah. about you, whatever that is. And if I've created the brand successfully, it should all be positive. Yeah. <laughs> it should be good. You've gone to a, one of the people in the UK who takes amazing portraits. That yeah. would be the logic. And that's yeah what we built the problem with spinning that off and we've tried a couple of different avenues if i'm being brutally honest this is not the strongest bit mm. of our strategy yet okay um, i'm hoping i've still got time in these legs and arms and eyes to be able to finish that journey but a few years ago an opportunity came up now one of the things with me <laughs> i don't know whether this is good or bad is i've always taken the taken the view that I will say yes and work out how later. Yeah, I like that approach. Um, I'm not quite act like a king, be a king, or fake it till you make it, whatever variations there are of that, not quite. Because there's the other side of me that I really, when I say I'm just a photographer, I mean it. But I've asked Raymond Blanc about what he is, and he says, I'm just a cook. Mm. And if, if you can be Raymond Blanc and say you're just a, just cook, a cook, then I can be me and say I'm just a photographer. I want to retain the modesty in the brand. I want to retain... Mm. My, f I mean, to be fair, I say I want us to keep my feet on the ground. That sounds terrible. My kids make sure my feet are always on the ground. They tell me my pictures, they hate them. <laughs> and that's what kids are designed to do, isn't it? Make you feel insecure. Um, but I don't want to be braggy. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm now, I'm in sort of kind of a community of photographers that's global. And I look at the way different nationalities promote themselves. You know, the American side of the market is much more, mm. I think it's much more, they're much more comfortable selling themselves. That's the American way of doing things, isn't I it? I think it's brilliant. Yeah. And, and I, I spent enough time working in America to both admire it and wish it was me. But the reality is it didn't yeah. become yeah. me. I can't do it. And so everything we're doing, we're trying to do it in a way where I can just be me and do what I'm doing, but find avenues where there are opportunities for us to sell on. Yeah, yeah. So the things we're looking at at the moment, uh, I've also got the Mastering Portrait Photography book, which is still being printed. Can you yeah. believe it? Five I looked it on Amazon the other day. Yeah, it looks very good. Yeah. Uh, and I got an email from someone even this morning uh, saying they, they, they got the book on their bookshelf, on their, yeah, on the bookshelf. Um, which, is, which is really, really lovely. And that was sent to Sarah Plater, my co-author. She found me and asked if I'd be willing to get involved. So that's one of those opportunities. I said yes and then figured out how later. Nice, nice. Um, not an easy year, that one, because it happened to be the year my dad died. Um, but it gave me something to focus on. Forgive the pun. Uh, and so this whole other brand, Mastering Portrait Photography, sort of emerged, still very much spinning around me and what I yeah. do. Um, and we've built this incredible resource for portrait photographers. I mean, for photographers yeah. generally, but mostly portrait photographers, um, which was full of videos and articles and the technical diagrams the book never had an opportunity to explore because, of course, I come from a technical background. So drawing a technical diagram of a lighting setup is easy. Using 3D software is easy. I used to teach 3D software as part of what I learned as an industrial designer. So I'm now modeling things and producing tools for photographers. Yeah, yeah. Um, I sat down one night and decided to record a podcast. We were talking about this earlier, and I thought it'd be fun. I used to be a sound engineer, which is, again, a spin-off of being a drummer. Someone asked me to mix and sounds both live and in studios and I said, yeah what how hard can that be Love it. um and so i just i recorded a, an episode or two and that also now is that's probably bigger mm. 
my the Mastering Portrait Photography podcast is now bigger globally than the Mastering Portrait Photography brand on its own. Okay. You know, we get emails from all over the world about it. And to me, this is, this is interesting isn't it? because this is the thing about business growth. So when I, when I gain, if I come back down my pyramid of growing the value, one of these, we, we all talk about new product development. And to me, you've got to build up other products. And most business owners don't make money on their first product. Right. They make money further downstream because they learn the lessons. And often we talk about, you know, is it a, is it a, a product that's related to the first one or a product that's actually unrelated? Mm. And what you're doing here is I'm seeing is you're building a brand, Mastering Portrait Photography. You've created a first brand, Paul Wilkinson. You've then got this other brand coming out of it. But people buy Mastering Portrait Photography because of the Paul Wilkinson right. brand that enables them to do it. Yeah. And actually, they want to come and get trained in that way because they have the kite mark and say, I'm trained to buy Paul Wilkinson. I've got this way of doing it. And to me, there's a the, part of it is extracting what's in your mind of how to do it and putting that on paper because that's what people want to buy. They want to know how to do it. It doesn't mean they're going to turn them all into Paul Wilkinson's. Yeah but they're going, to turn, they're going to have some other way of doing it. And I think this is the mastery bit that people need. Yeah. And that's where the next bit of it could come from. Because again, you can grow value by looking to do it. But there's a step before that. And that's about building the systems to enable you to do it. Because you can't build a business for, as a one-man band without some systemization to make the products come alive. Yeah. Because there's only 24 hours in a day, 160 hours in a week, 68 hours in a week. Yeah. Therefore... You've got to systemize what you do. Well, you vastly underestimate the number of hours there are in a week. They're infinite. Yeah. Of course they are. If you're a one-man band, there's as many hours as you exactly. need. Exactly. You know, I just don't sleep or eat or any of those things. Um, yes. And of course, I come from a company. <laughs> you know, I'm lucky, right? I came, I, I entered the world as a creative. I then got sidetracked for what, 13, 14, 15 years, partly academic. And then someone had worked in a big manage, business management consultancy. And then I got spat out at the end. Well, I kind of flung myself out at the end with a degree of energy and a big grin, a huge amount of naivety. But in the back of my head, a reasonable understanding mm, of mm. what it would take to run a business. I think the only thing is a couple of times I've sat down to try and design processes in this <clears> business. And that has failed magnificently every single time I've done it. Every single time, without fail. Not that they haven't had an impact, but they're never the processes we have now. And, and I use an analogy, and I used to use this analogy at Accenture too. Be careful the path the architects designed or the urban planner yeah, designed yeah. around the outside of a park. Go and look at the park and look at the muddy trail that goes from A to B, bypassing the architect's process. Love it. Right, lovely. You have to walk a while to know where the path goes. Yeah. And so I've done it that way. We designed processes so that I didn't screw anything up you know, backups and business resilience and all of those things, they're in there and they were designed. They were crappy. But they worked. But they worked. And then over time, I had a good look at where the muddy trail went across the park. Yeah. And so our processes now, and I say me, it's, that's not strictly true, me and Sarah and Michelle between us have all worked out what works really well for each of mm, us. Mm. Because we always wanted this to feel like a family, but of course it still has to run like a business. So that's really hard. You can't just be it. You can't. There's no diktats in here. It just sort of happens. Yeah, yeah. But we do have those conversations, and what's happened is we found, on the whole, not entirely, not entirely 100% successfully, but on the whole, we found those diagonal paths across yeah. the park. So yeah, we do have a, a process here. It's very efficient for the level of detail we produce, but the level of detail we produce is in a different league to probably 80% of the rest of the photography market. You know, most of the images, for instance, I enter into competitions are the actual images our client had. Okay. And that's not true of most photographers. Most photographers will bury those images away and completely rework them 
mm. for competition. Mm. I don't have the luxury of the time of going back. I don't have the memory for a start. I'm useless. Yeah. So unless it was finished really well first time round, chances are it isn't getting finished. It's not going to be done again. Yeah. So we, but the converse of that is that we're an incredibly energy inefficient business in terms of my energy mm. because every shoot has images in it that are prepped pretty much to competition standards even before they're bought. Now that's a challenge, and I haven't got you an answer. And if there's an easy answer. I've tried a few things. One, for instance, is for goodness sake, don't finish all of the images. Finish just a couple as examples yeah. and then show your client. Well, then we just spent a lot of time with conversation with the client saying, can you show me what that image will look mm. like when it's finished? Mm. Well, no, base it on the other ones. These ones we've got, yeah. So consequently, our time requirements on that side went up and our sales per shoot came down. So I've gone back to finishing all of the images that we need to finish and our sales have gone up and the time in this room has gone down. The problem is that time components come back to me. Because I don't do the sales. Because you're the creative eye around it, doing the, the initial eye. bit again. So we found little tricks. So one of them is, actually, I do finish pretty much every image. Mm. But as you know, we create a series. I call them heroes. And the guys down here in the sales room call them Paul's favorites, I think. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I like my term better. Yeah, heroes. Hero images. Uh, Paul's favorite sounds a little bit sort of, you know, <laughs> simple. But it is what we use. And we use it to guide the client. And now when the guys design a frame as an example to show a client, if there's ever a tipping point, is well, let's see which picture Paul picked. Yeah, because that's the way that actually yeah, planned they wanted, good they wanted my input. And we discovered it accidentally, which I kept having to come down into the sales room. Michelle would come upstairs and say, Paul, mm. can you just come and answer these questions? And the question would be, which one would you pick, Paul? Yeah. And so I'd say, that one. That's my favorite. And then leave. And they'd, that's the one. So we started doing it in advance. Which comes back to that point you raised earlier, that most people don't know what makes a good image. So they rely on your right. view and your expertise right. to say yeah. that works. Because actually sometimes it's like looking at your own photos you've taken on your iPhone or whatever device you use. You can take hundreds of pictures of the same thing. And when you come through to make your Christmas album, whoever you get around to doing it, you then go through and select which one's right. But actually they're all about the same. So if yeah. someone can give you the guidance and say, yeah. this is the right one. And right. I think this is the thing about running a business, though, isn't it? You sometimes want someone else to bounce the idea off to say, well, what do you think? Well, which is where the coaching comes in. There's a twist. Yeah. There's a twist. Tell me. Sarah picks them. I ah, pick the heroes. Okay. I do pick. Paul's favorites are my favorites. Yeah. But Sarah does the first selection. Yeah. I will give her 400 pictures from a shoot and she will give me back 40. And that's a time efficiency thing? Both time and skills. Okay. Because as you know, if you look at your own pictures on your own iPhone, mm. very hard to pick out the one mm. you like or the one that you think is correct or the best yeah. one or the one your yeah. others are going to like. Look at somebody else's phone. You'll tell someone in a moment like that, you know. Uh, I needed to, to do two things. I needed to save some time on my side of the workflow. And I needed to improve the selection process. Yeah. And me and Sarah would been batting it around. And she said, what if she does the selection? She worked mm. as a marketeer, remember? So she worked with photographers mm. all the time. So Argos, right, we're going to use that image for that. That mm. image for that. Those images are no good. Go and reshoot. That was her job. Now, the reason we didn't do it up front is because we're married. Yeah. <laughs> and I like being married. And if the two of us had done that up front, we'd have had so many rounds. arguments. Yeah. But eventually pressure dictated. I could see the path across, the diagonal path across the park. Yeah. So she does it and she's better at it than I will ever be. And that says to me, you can scale what you're doing because it doesn't mean it has to be you doing all the time because there are 
Sorry, Sarah. There are more than one person out there with Sarah's eye for detail. Possibly. But the one thing Sarah brings to this is a really implicit knowledge of the brand we represent. Uh, So you said earlier, it was interesting, I heard you say, you said it's not just the image that's your brand, but it is a key component of Mm. the brand. People now recognise our images. People email yeah. saying, "Oh, is that yours? That looked like yours." Yeah. Even even I recognise them, which is slightly ironic because I look at a picture in a magazine and say, "Sarah, I love this image. You took that." And she'll laugh and say, "It's you, you, you. muppet." I didn't know I'd taken it, but I knew it chimed with me. Our images have a particular look about them. Sarah governs that. Yeah. So she knows what the brand represents. She knows the craft that we have to represent, yeah. and she isn't emotional about it whereas i am i was gonna say i'll spend hours saying i yeah. really like this person i love this picture yeah. i love this picture i love this yeah. person of course i've got to pick one yeah you know it's interesting isn't it because actually this is the thing about you talk about you know, an artist can pick out their painting and you can you can pick an artist's picture because you know the way they do use the brush or the strokes or the way they use the media and you're the same in that case of taking the photo but the point there is you're the creative bit behind it and you're the passion behind it mm-hmm. and you need someone who's got a slightly removed way of looking at it and the key bit here, again, I come back to it around is when you're looking at time, again, let's come back to this 168 hours in a week. If you want to make a business work, you need to do so something else with it. Exactly. <laughs> Only that. Only. But here's the, here's the rub. Everyone says they're busy. So it's actually looking at how do you improve your systems because you only get a pint in a pint pot. Yeah. But actually doesn't mean you can't improve what you're doing to get better into Absolutely. it, make it more dense in the hours you're putting Absolutely. in. And this, I think, is the key to growing a business. You've got to step it forward and say, okay, how do I scale me? How do I scale my time? So creating that brand and taking away to mastering portrait photography, creating a book, creating the next book around mastering portrait photography too, yeah. whatever that other version is, that then gets your name out there in a different way. Now, that might just be a channel to market. It might just get you more people to see your images. Yes. But also it could be a brand in its own right where people buy that because they see it. It's the Raymond Blanc cookbook that yeah. people go and buy at Christmas because they want that's that it. way of doing that's things. exactly it. And you can make more. But that's only one other product. The bit I think is around how do you then create your craft and, and capture the Paul Wilkinson in a tin? The problem in this industry, and I'm guessing this is true of all creative industries, is you can only do that to a, to a point. Mm. Because everybody, if I skill up someone to be me, guess what? They want to be them. Of course they do. Quite rightly. That's what I, I've never worked under another photographer. I couldn't have done it. And I think that psychology is true for the vast majority of photographers or creatives. So if you train someone up to be me, they'll go off and be them. And that's actually true in hotelier and restauranteering as well. The chefs are trained to point and then they fly. But isn't that point of apprenticeships, isn't it? You learn from the master yeah, and then you do it, it yourself. Of course it is. The problem is that this is not an industry where we're quite big enough in terms of body count to make that work. So in a restaurant, you can do it. Yeah. You've got 30 chefs at the pass. You've got one head chef, a couple of sous chefs, or you know, and then the team structure, and you've got the chef patron, Raymond Blanc, at the very top yeah. of the pile. And Gary Jones, who's the executive head chef at Le Manoir, is as well-known in chef circles as Raymond Blanc is. He stayed there because he loves that process of bringing people up and sending them yeah. out. But they don't really compete with Le Manoir because they'll go up to other restaurants all around the world. They'll set up other hotels in a distance, and there's this kind of symbiotic thing that goes on between them. In photography, you do compete, mm. and it's not quite straightforward. And if you add on to that complexity, which is a straightforward business conversation, and then you wrap into that the standard insecurities of a creative, it doesn't work quite so well, or at least I haven't yet found the way to do that. 
Yeah. And we've looked That's at it. We've looked at it a few times, yeah. you know, so-and-so, so-and-so at Paul Wilkinson or by Paul Wilkinson, a different craftsman coming through, maybe a different perspective, maybe a different part of the business, mm. you know, architectural photography by Paul Wilkinson and his team, you know, putting another photographer. But as soon as you skill them up mm. with all of the bits of the puzzle they need, they're going to go. And, 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 and interesting, I don't think that's what you should do in a business like this, though, because you're never going to replicate the artist. You're never, if, if Monet had a, a, a second in command, if um, uh, Renoir had a second in command, if Michelangelo could work on a Sistine Chapel and someone else painting down the road, they actually create their own name in their own right and they go off and set up their own practice. And I think that's the key to it, is having them to go away and do, your, do, do their work. And I think this comes back to what's your purpose in business? Because I think everyone actually has a purpose why they do it. So I wonder, if you were to think now, what, what would be the reason you do what you do? What's the dent you want to make in the universe? What's the reason you create your craft? Ah, oh, isn't that a great question? There are days when I wake up and it's all about the business opportunity. It's all about the money. Mm. But those mm. days count on one hand in an entire year. Yeah, yeah. The rest of the time, you literally want someone to love your work. Mm. whether that's the industry whether that's your client whether that's yourself i mean there are days when i just want to love my work yeah. you know and that's not every day yeah. i have learned i have learned over the years when i'm looking at my own work to be careful because you can dent your own confidence if you're not very very certain of what you're doing yeah, <laughs> you, yeah. Can, you can pick your own work so far apart that in the end you've got you've just destroyed yourself um so that is a, that is a comp Complexity in my world that mm. I haven't got an answer for you mm. yet. But like I said, I'm on a long journey. Yeah. And this time next year, it might all be about the money. But I doubt it. And it could be a nice time to have a second conversation because I'm going to leave you that question again. Just what would, uh, what would purpose look like? And the question to ask yourself is if you want someone to work, love your work, just ask your question, why is that important to you? And you may not want to answer that now. No, I can answer it. Well, no, I can't answer it, but I can. And ask any, any performer why they love being on stage. And you'll get the same answer as I would give you. And it's in the end, mm-hmm. the same reasons our clients come with their families. Yeah. That combination of affirmation yeah. and um, aspiration. Yeah. Most creatives are insecure. Interesting. I've met some creatives who are not. They're just simply wonderful and mad and don't care what anybody else thinks. But those, those guys are rare. I'm not one of those guys. I'm someone who really does care what people think about my images. Yeah. To the point when, you know, here, I don't read any of our incoming emails. If I see emails come in, I won't read them if I can see they're from a client. I'll wait for Sarah and Michelle to filter those out and deliver it in language that they know I can deal with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it can destroy you. Yeah, of course it can. You know, I, I'm... Very successful. We have a lovely business. We're well respected in the industry and outside the industry. And yet my confidence is as fragile as any creative. Mm. I'm not unique. I don't think I'm saying anything that would be a surprise. Um, I think, you know, when I worked at Accenture, I was not that. And, and I, think, I think this is the point of running a successful artist business. I use the word artist business. I think you have to keep that confidence in check because otherwise you take it for granted. Mm. And you've got to always be on the edge because there's other people out there. And for you to win another accolade yesterday says that you're always on the ball. You're always thinking about how to create mm. your business in the way it should be. And your photography is what, that's the outward portrayal of you. Yeah. And if you become complacent, you take your eye off the image, yeah. you lose your touch. Yeah. 
there's a brilliant sign. It's stuck on every kitchen wall in Le Manoir. And it simply says, you are Le Manoir. Push yourself. Love it. Love it. And on that note, I'm going to say thank you very much, Paul Wilkinson. Pleasure. I'd love to come back and talk again. <laughs> I'd but, like uh, you to, because I've, I've got a long list of questions for of questions. you. And of course, we've actually done this talk about photography. We have. And, and it's been fascinating talking about it because I think we've gone through so many different things. And I've loved the conversation. And, and, and you know, I've tried to steer it around a business angle because that's the, the intent of what I'm trying to do. But at the end of the day, ignium means to ignite. I want to ignite people's passion for their business, but actually for their purpose. Because my belief is everyone has a purpose above and beyond making money. Yeah. And if you just do it for money, you will not fulfill your purpose. This is a slight footnote. I said this to someone the other day. It's about money. So I signed my exit contract for Accenture two days after they gave me that year's pay raise. And that year's pay raise was bigger than my starting salary at Accenture. And I still signed it and I still left. And that yeah. tells you everything you need to know about making money. Yeah, Making money gets you so far and it yeah. certainly helps with paying the bills. Yeah. And I'm certainly not saying, particularly at a time like this, yeah. that it's not prudent to look after the money side of everything. Of course I'm not. I'm, I'm not a fool. I am saying though, if you chase money, I've never met anyone where they get to the end of that chase and are happy. Yeah. Ever. Which is why it's got to be purpose. You've got yeah. to be purpose-led. If you, if you can have a purpose that's bigger than you, you, you're never going to achieve it, but you're on the route to do it all the way through. Yeah. It's a bit different to vision. Vision is a bit, you know, becoming the master portrait photographer, but actually having a purpose about something else, about inspiring people or being, you know, bringing, bringing life back to people so they can see your picture on the wall and it just gives them that spark of joy. Yeah. And they look at it and they think to themselves, that's what I used to look like, or this is my family, or I'm so proud of what I've created. That's the thing I think that photography brings out, because you look at those pictures and it brings, you know, purpose is, is to me is the thing that brings a tear to your eye. Yeah. It's the bit that says, that's why I do what I do. Yeah. And when you get that, that's your real reason for doing it. it. You and your family came back. Yeah, exactly. The, the yeah. shots are like exactly everything I would ever have dreamt of taking when I started out. They're better than anything I ever thought I could take. Yeah. And on top of that, your, both of your daughters came back as models and we created yeah. more pictures. And this time with someone who was still learning. Yeah. Imagine how good that person, well, I know because they emailed me, how good that person felt. Yeah. Because of the pictures they created. Love That's that. what gets you out of bed in the yeah, morning. Yeah, it does. And you've got to, you've got to lock onto that because you'll always have a bad day. But if you can yeah. just remember that, yeah. that's the key. Thanks, Paul. Pleasure. Have the conversation. <laughs> so that concludes this episode of Sparks. Thanks for listening. We're always looking for ideas on how to drive this podcast forward. So if you've got comments, please leave them via a review of our show, along with your rating. Or send us an email to sparks at eviumconsult.com. Yeah.